Well, you notice when you first start reading that passage, it starts out with this line, and I saw something else under the sun. And this is the transition line that Solomon, the person writing this book of the Bible, um, says repeatedly when he starts a new train of thought. And it's also for us a constant reminder just what this book is all about. We've noted already repeatedly over the last couple of weeks that uh, Solomon can be a pretty depressing type of, uh, he can be a pretty, pretty depressing writer, and this book can be really depressing if we don't keep in mind what he's trying to do. This verse says it pretty upfront, I saw something else under the sun. And that's uh, versus seeing things under, uh, seeing, seeing reality is heaven and earth and all that is in them. Solomon's trying to point out to just life under the sun, just life on earth. What about this life gives us meaning and purpose? And if this life is all there is, what meaning could there possibly be? So we read Ecclesiastes constantly reminding ourselves of this, that Solomon is pointing to life under the sun and is asking if this is all there is, what meaning is there? What's the meaning of it all? And he's trying to push us towards acknowledging something about who we are. He's trying to push us towards understanding who God made us to be, particularly in relationship to God's self. Today's uh, passage might be actually a little bit biting. It touches on a theme that our world today is having big conversations about and are, are centered on in a really, uh, a really profound way. And that's on the, that's the theme of justice. And Solomon wants us to know something about justice under the sun. That is justice if only, if the only thing about reality is just this physical, uh, meandering, toilsome life that that um, that many of us experience day to day. But he also wants us to ask this question of what does our longing for justice reveal about us? What does this ingrained sense of right and wrong uh, reveal about who we are as human beings? And that's a really important question. The, the, uh, there's, there's a moral ought inside of us. Actually, across every culture, there's this sense no matter where you are born in the world, that there is a moral ought, there is an ingrained right and wrong that we feel deeply inside of us. So what is, what's that all about? If, if life on earth is all there is, what is that all about? And maybe is it pointing at us to something outside of just life on earth? That's, that's what this text is inviting us to really wrestle with. So let's wrestle with it together. We start actually in verse 15 instead of just 16. Verse 15 sort of sets, sets the stage. It says, whatever is, pardon me, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past into account. And it's that line, God will call the past into account that reminds us that already on Solomon's mind, 
is this idea of judgment and justice. And so he's, he's making this natural transition into that theme from that previous verse. He says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of justice, wickedness was there. These are really, that's a really profound statement that he just made. On all of his searching through all the world, Solomon looks to seek out justice and righteousness and, and, and places where, where judgment or where, 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 where judgment happens, where justice is actually enacted against the oppressive and the unjust. And he doesn't find justice happening. He doesn't find righteousness. He actually finds the opposite. And even more than that, it's in the places where justice is supposed to reign, he finds the opposite. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. He's telling us something just about even uh, just a, uh, about the whole breadth of human experience when it comes to justice, and it is this: even the places of human justice that we say as humans, this is where justice happens, tends to be corrupted over time, and then not be concerned with true justice. And we have an ingrained sense of this um, culturally right now, because of a lot of our institutions have shown themselves to be corrupt over time. But even like we, we have a sense of our court system being easily manipulatable if you have enough money or if you are powerful enough, if you have enough money, you can buy the best lawyers and you can get out of anything that happens. And then that place of justice where justice is supposed to reign is a place where, where there is no concern for actual justice. There are some headlines actually out of, out of Alberta um, in the last couple of days about a person who had done some really horrific things to piano students of his and, uh, and only got four years of, of prison time for doing something that, that scarred children for a lifetime. And you have to look at that and say, where is the justice? And there was a, I saw a huge debate about it, asking just this very question, people who are not believers, but who look at the justice system and still say, where is the justice in this? And we know from scripture that we can look to that justice system and expect to find wickedness. We can expect at some point to find injustice or at least a lessening concern for true justice. One of the one of the um, the books that I read for this uh, sermon said, well, "Ask this ask this rhetorical question: When the halls of justice become corridors of corruption, where can righteousness be found?" And it's true, isn't it? When the halls of justice become corridors of corruption, where can righteousness be found? A U.S. Supreme Court justice just passed away, I guess it was yesterday, 
on Friday. And um, the immediate reaction was to ask political ramifications. To talk about politics rather than the pursuit of true justice. And everyone's concern after her death was all about political ideology rather than what does this mean for the justice system. And, and I realize in the States those maybe are uh, intertwined in a way that they're not in Canada. But that just goes to show how power and politics corrupt justice, if it says anything. So Solomon looks at places of judgment and finds wickedness. Places of justice, he finds wickedness. And he says to himself, he reminds himself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. And there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Solomon takes his own teaching to heart. He's already told us there is a time for everything. And he's reminding himself there will be a time for justice. It sometimes doesn't seem like justice is going to come, but there will be a time for it. So right now we can work for justice, but that doesn't mean that justice's time has fully come. We can work for justice, but you know what we need to do is not place our full confidence in our work. Because oftentimes, throughout all of human history, our attempts at seeking justice only really move the bar a fraction of a centimeter. Just a couple of millimeters, when we really want it to go miles and kilometers away. We work for justice, but we don't place confidence in our work. And in fact, we should expect at any given time that our striving for justice is going to cause injustice somewhere, because that's off. That's what, that's what happens when humans try to do things. Our sin gets extended as we extend ourselves out as well. So where should our confidence be? This verse says pretty plainly, it should be in God. It should be in the one who will judge perfectly, who brings all things under judgment. We place our confidence and trust in Jesus, who is the chief judge over all of history. And we remember the martyr's cry in Revelation 6. Remember, we went through that just about a year ago. The, the martyrs cried out, saying, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge? And we're invited to do that same cry. How long, Lord, until you judge the heavens and the earth? Although don't be too... Be care... I'll say this, be careful with that type of prayer. Because we cry out for justice against other people, but oftentimes want mercy for ourselves. So we want other people to get that, that speeding ticket, but if we're speeding and we get pulled over, we want mercy. We don't want the ticket. Right? 
We want forgiveness, but we'll hold a grudge against other people. We want the break, but we won't give breaks to other people. What will Jesus do to us if that is our mentality about justice today? Justice is all about right relationship, and it starts with right relationship with God. And then works itself out to others. That's what that's what righteousness really is. It's righteousness is right relationship. And so, calling out this this prayer of of um, of the of the saints in Revelation, how long before you come to judge? Is also it's not just an invitation to judge other people. It's also an invitation for God to judge you, and to sift you and to refine you. Are you ready for that? Because even if you're not, it's going to happen. You don't know when, you don't know where, it will happen. So how are you living your life in relation to that knowledge? That's a, that's, that's a pretty profound question. I'm going to let you wrestle with that. Now, uh, Solomon goes on, changing the uh, changing the subject just a little bit, and uh, and a really interesting passage actually. He says to himself again. He says this a new thing to himself. As for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. <laughs> now, what is this all about? Let's keep reading at first. Uh, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. And so now we see what exactly he's getting at. It's not that humans and animals are the exact same. He's not making an evolutionary claim, is one way of putting it, I guess. But he, he he's saying, you know, we think that we're so special. But where do we go and where do the animals go for if 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 life under the sun is all there is we both end up as dust one dies so dies the other all have the same breath humans have no advantage over animals everything is meaningless everything is vapor everything is vapor you can't grasp hold of it it withers and blows away the delay in God's justice in the world that Solomon talks about in those first couple of verses is really pointed out, uh, though in a, in a bit of a, uh, undercutting way in that, in that verse 18, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. And that could be a test like a pass or fail test, but it could also just be a, a test in terms of the refinement of character. And I think that's what Solomon's getting at. Delays in justice give us an opportunity to, to, to demonstrate our character and it reveals us for who we are. When the going gets tough, who we are appears very, very quickly. It is easy to put on a mask when everything's going great. But when things are going poorly, who we truly are on our inside, in our hearts of hearts, who we truly are, will show up and will show up with power, with, with, with a fury. And some of you, I know, 
that fury is a joy-filled fury. It's not anger. That on your worst days, you are still filled with joy. But I know others of us, that's just not true. On our worst days, we can be mean and angry and selfish and self-centered and unforgiving and all these things. Delays in justice demonstrate our character. If those are who we are when the going gets tough, that says something about the condition of our heart that we need to pay attention to because God is revealing something to us where we need to repent. And he's doing this to show us that our fate is the same as the animals. That, that is, that we both go to dust. And one of the most famous phrases in all of scripture all go to the same place. All who come from dust, all, all come from dust, and to dust all return. This is a callback to Genesis 3 where God made, uh, made the humans out of dust. Uh, man and then, and then woman, uh, and breathed life into them. And he says, you came from dust, you are going to return to dust. It's also part of the curse, actually, in Genesis 3. It's where the, the, original, phrase, the, the original phrasing comes from. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. Our experience of death is a sign of the curse of sin on our lives. And this curse extends not just within humans, but it, it touches all of creation. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. And they ask this rhetorical question, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth? Who knows? We don't know. That's the truth of it. We don't know if it's, if, if it's, if it's just left up to us and our own devices and our ability to investigate for ourselves whether the spirit of people and animals rise upward or down there's no way that there's there we we can't know so who knows who knows i wonder who i wonder what he's trying to trying to get us to reckon with eh so he says so what enjoy your work if there is there's if there's if this is all there is in life then all you can do is find joy in your work for that is their lot. That's all you can do. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Who can bring them to see what will happen after them? That is, no one can show you what's going to happen after you die. That's what Solomon's, that's what Solomon's saying. No other, uh, no other uh, human being is able to. Now we'll talk about that in a second. But you know what? After saying that, he immediately second guesses himself, eh? He immediately says, Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. And instead of pointing to justice and waiting for God's justice, he looks again at all the oppression... And it becomes really clear 
that for Solomon, if this life is all there is, he can't escape the fact that life cannot possibly have any meaning. If you're born and live and you witness oppression and injustice and disaster and never do, you don't seem to be able to affect meaningful change in the world and then you die and that's all there is to life, then what is the point of this life? this is what he's getting at in these final verses. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressor and they have no comforter. And I declare that the dead who have already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who was never born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. He immediately gets really dark and saying, if this is all there is to life, if just this life of toil is all there is, what is the point of any of it? It would be better if we weren't born than to experience the evil in the world. But I think there's a really important message in that verse 22. It's in the final sentence. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? I think this is the important verse in this, uh, in this passage. Who can bring them to see what will happen after them? You know, as depressing as he can be, he can be pretty depressing. <laughs> Solomon is great at asking questions. And this is a doozy. This, is right, this question hits it right on the nose. Because there is someone who can bring us up and show us what will happen after us. There is a person. And if we want to know what happens after death, if we want to know what it will look like when justice truly comes, and what the world will be like when all is brought to rights, there is a person who we can ask and follow and trust. And that person is Jesus. God made flesh who dwelled among us, who died and rose again. He's seen death. He saw death on the cross, but he did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again, and then he ascended to the heavens to be seated at the right hand of God. And that, that right hand is the place of judgment. Jesus is now seated on the throne waiting for the day when he will enact judgment over the living and the dead and now everyone who believes in him will rise again this is a promise of scripture a promise of jesus that all will rise and that jesus is preparing a place for us with him we get to co-judge with Jesus, the heavens and the earth. What an incredible promise that is. And with that promise, then, we can know that justice will certainly come and that there is life after death because we have seen Jesus rise from the dead as proof of it. And we know that life has meaning because of that. And so we can trust Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Who can bring 
us to see what will happen after us? The answer is Jesus. And so we can look at this passage and say there is tons of injustice and oppression. And right now, the oppressed have no one to comfort them. And the the people who have no power have no one to to comfort them. And there are, there are those who cry and 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 mourn and no one to comfort them but then we can look to jesus and we can find all those things we can find someone who comforts the oppressed we can find someone who comforts the poor we can find someone who comforts the mourning we can find someone who's seen death and defeated it and then invited us into new life as a, as a new humanity in him. So have you claimed Jesus' promise by faith of rising again to glory from the dust? This is his promise that if we put our faith in him, we will have life eternal that we will rise again into glory. And it's something that we can we can hang our hat on and orient our life so that when we see injustice, we can't we it's not we don't get filled with indignation and frustration, but we long instead for that day when Jesus comes again, and in the meantime, we can orient ourselves towards Jesus and to living as he taught us how to live, which is to live a life of justice. Are we claiming that promise by faith, and are we grasping hold of it? You know, if this life is all there is, and there is no heaven or hell, it's just when we die, we're dead. What's the point of justice? Truly, what is what would be the point of it? It would just be making a hard life a little bit more bearable for some of us. But if there is a God, and if there is a heaven, if we will live with God forever when the heavens crash into the earth and God makes all things right then justice today matters because justice today living as just people today seeking justice today orients us towards living the life of God's kingdom today that we are going to surely live in tomorrow and it forces us to reckon with the fact that we will be judged. And so we repent of our sin and we approach God's throne of grace and ask forgiveness. And then we go out into the world to invite others to repent and ask forgiveness and receive God's grace as well. And that process of confession and repentance and receiving God's grace and then inviting others to do it is what brings about justice in the world because it reminds everyone that we are not the ones who are enacting justice in the world fundamentally 
that there is a God who will bring justice fully and completely in a way that we never will, will be able to do. And until that day, we work towards it. But we work towards it in the knowledge that we'll never fully experience justice until Christ comes again. So whether it's a season of justice or a season of injustice, whether it's a, se a season of, of freedom or oppression, no matter the season that is happening in history and, and all the types of seasons in between, we can know that Jesus is still judge over history. And with that knowledge and with the knowledge of the promise that comes with that, we can rejoice because by faith, we can have hope to persevere in the face of all suffering, injustice, and oppression under the sun. Church, Christ is alive. So trust him. Trust in his finished work for you. Trust in his good judgment and his promise of new life for you, beginning today and going on into eternity. We're going to celebrate communion now. So if you have the bread and the cup, you can grab them and bring them, uh, just put them in front of you for now. I'd like to read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians. This is a passage written by Paul to the Corinthian church, instructing them on uh, how to do communion together. Because in the early church, communion was a communal meal. It was a bunch of people gathered around a table sharing not just bread and wine, but a, but a whole feast. And the Corinthian church was really bad at this. They wouldn't, uh, they would, they would have these feasts and all the rich people would eat all the food first. And then the poor would come and there would be nothing left for them. And so Paul is giving them instructions to take communion, to have these communal meals together in such a way that honors Christ. And part of that is doing this self-reflection and placing ourselves under Christ's judgment to be tested, to have our character tested, to find out who we really are. And then to, to, and, and then, and then we're invited essentially to, to, to turn towards him and receive his grace. And we receive his grace in a way through this, this communion meal, through the remembrance of his death, uh, the, his, his, his broken body and his shed blood for us. This is what, uh, this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of singing, sinning against the body and blood of our Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'm going to invite you to examine yourselves before we continue with communion and to seek God's forgiveness for the ways that you have sinned intentionally and probably even more so for many of us un unintentionally. We seek his forgiveness and repent for the times when we place ourselves above others, when we place God behind all the other things in our life, which is to be idolatrous, to place other things in the place in our life where God should be at the center. So I invite you just to spend a couple of seconds repenting before our Lord, and then we're going to be led in communion through the, um, the, 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 the way that the early church taught uh, how to give thanks and take communion in a text called the Didache, which is one of the earliest Christian documents we have. Let's spend some time in prayer first. Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we thank you for your holy name and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to us for enjoyment that we might give thanks to you but to us you give freely spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant before all things we thank you and that you are mighty to you be the glory forever remember lord your church and deliver it from all evil and make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds sanctified for your kingdom which you have prepared for it for yours is the power and the glory let grace come and let this world pass away hosanna to the son of david if anyone is holy let them come and if anyone is not so let them repent first the cup we thank you our father for the holy vine of david your child which you have revealed through jesus your child to you be the glory forever and in connection with the bread we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge 
which you have revealed through Jesus, your child. To you be the glory forever. As this piece of bread was scattered over the hills and then was brought together and made one, so let your church, Lord, be brought together from the ends of the earth, from all over Hamilton to regather into your kingdom, for yours is the glory, the power, through Jesus Christ, forever. The body of Christ, take and eat. And the cup of the new covenant take and drink Lord we thank you for your life we thank you for sending your son Jesus the perfect human who is the one who can show us what is to come after us. And we thank you that he's done that. Now, Father, we pray for your grace to transform us from the inside out of those things that we repent of today. We ask that you would galvanize our repentance, that you would galvanize our spirit away from sin and towards holiness and justice in your name. We thank you for your broken body and we thank you for the cup we have drank, this cup of the new covenant in your blood. And today, Father, we, we took and eat, eaten and, and, and drank of the cup to proclaim your death and to remember your resurrection and the promise that you have given us that we will rise as well with you. And so, Father, help us to orient our hearts towards that and to orient our hearts towards justice and towards right relationship first with you and then with everyone else in our lives we pray in jesus name amen maranatha come lord jesus soon and all god's people said amen <laughs> i hope i hope you said amen otherwise that's just weird <laughs>